Well, that was a good message to that song and something we all need to be reminded of. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God today. And uh, how many of you were blessed by Dr. Gibbs the last few days? And uh, he always is encouraging, and I had dinner with him last night, and he sure loves this college. And his son, uh, J.D., who's uh, one of their attorneys there, at uh, CLA, graduated from West Coast Baptist College and uh, has just been a great uh, representative of our college. And their uh, staff watches our live stream services uh, as a part of their staff devotions. And uh, they, they feel like they're a part of our church family, and that's a blessing. So thank you for being a blessing to them. I want to remind you of a couple of things. Um, first of all, tonight we start our midweek service back, and it's been a year or two, I believe, since we've had the service. And um, we are uh, excited about getting back to our normal schedule. We have had two things going on. We had COVID, uh, obviously that. A lot of people adjusted their schedule. Brother England sitting on the left side. I'm going to have to rearrange how I preach, Brother England, so good to see you there. But uh, you notice these things when you preach a lot like I do. But anyways, um, uh, tonight we're excited about the service. We had the COVID situation, and then we had the um, uh, construction going on. And uh, we figured out a way to get our uh, classes on Sundays for the children and then uh, the smaller classes on Wednesday night. And so it's been a lot of uh, domino effect moving classes around. All that to say, uh, we're excited about getting back together. A couple things for tonight uh, as you come in. Uh, again, as always, greet the church family that sit around you and just introduce yourself to them and just be a part of our church family while you're here. Um, sometimes, uh, normally on Wednesday night when college is in, uh, the balcony will be open. You don't have to sit up there. If there's you know, seemingly some room on the side, you can take that, but kind of follow the lead of the ushers there and try to leave the bigger swath of this middle section for the church family, if you would. Uh, tonight, I'm going to allow something that the Lord just put on my heart uh, for the men, and uh, you will have an option tonight on your dress code, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow you on Wednesday night only uh, to wear a sport coat with no tie. And so if you'd like to do that, you can do that tonight. If you want to wear a tie, that's fine. I'll probably wear a tie uh, tonight. But uh, on Wednesday night, you'll be allowed to wear a sport coat. And the reason I want to do that is I don't want you wearing polo shirts or untucked shirts or any other things of that nature. Uh, I want you still to look sharp. But with the weather especially and so forth, if you'd like to uh, be a little cooler around the neck, then that would be something you can do. That is not the case on Sunday night or Sunday morning. So um, if you... Don't wear a tie on Sunday night or Sunday morning. We'll give you a chameleon, gazillion demerits, all right? So just make a note of that. If you don't wear a tie at leadership conference, we'll take you out back and work you over. So, uh, but uh, no, we, we, want you to, we want you to look sharp uh, Sunday, uh, especially, and then of course conference time, and they'll talk to you about it. Some of you fellas, you know, back over here on my right side, you need a haircut already, and uh, we love you. We're glad you're here. We're trying to be real nice to the freshmen, but when we get coming up next week close to the conference, if you're, you can get a haircut now or, or you can let Brother Blem tell you that's your choice. It's always your choice, uh, but we want you looking sharp as we have a lot of guests coming in. Get your shoes shined, and, and uh, all the ladies always look sharp. Say amen, fellas. So we just have to say these things to the men because we need, we need help. That's why God looked at Adam and he said, oh, this brother needs help. And, uh, and I, that's, that's, what he, that's what God said when he saw me as a freshman in Bible college. I mean, I was so stupid, I was washing a sport coat in a washing machine. 
And, uh, and, and Mrs. Chapel, we weren't even dating. She was on the other side of the laundromat and she was laughing at me and I, I didn't know why. And I found out later, you're not supposed to wash sport coats in a washing machine. So God looked down from heaven and said, that guy needs a help me. And, uh, and by the way, you all need help meets, you men do. I'm telling you that right now. So just to get the record straight. Quickly, also, I want to mention on uh, Friday, we have a home football game, and uh, it will be, and, and there may be a college activity, so that would take priority, but if there's not, uh, it's a lot of fun to go down to the field. I always like the students from the college that like sports to go down um, and root for uh, the Lancaster Baptist High School. It gives me a good uh, sense of working with our uh, young people that it's not us and them. It's not, you know, the, the high school and the college, but that we all are kind of rooting for each other. A lot of them will come to our college basketball games and so forth. So whenever they have an event like that, I like to men mention that to you as well. And so you're certainly welcome. I think it's probably going to be about six or seven o'clock. And I agree with what Dr. Getch said. And I'm excited about the time when the heat will break a little bit in the next few days and we'll have the opportunity to uh, I possibly have some rain this weekend, which would be like, like a ha we might speak in tongues if that happens. I'm not sure. But, uh, so we haven't had rain here in a long, long time. But if we do, Dr. R, don't worry, you'll interpret, all right? So uh, I'll, I'll do the tongue talking. You can do the interpret because we never speak in tongues without interpreting. So uh, we, we want to make sure we do that right. All right. Isaiah chapter 40. I think they might have given you an outline today. So I don't usually do that, but this is of, of an important subject that I thought you might like to have, and you'll get all of this in your bibliology class, but I thought you might enjoy some notes today. So Isaiah 40, let's read beginning in verse 6. The voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's read that verse together. Ready? Begin. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our student body, for the great spirit, uh, for the, the way that everyone's settling into classes, and we ask that you just continue to bless this semester. Uh, work your way and your will in our hearts, I pray. Keep the student body focused on you, and bless this time in your word, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When I went to Bible college, my parents at that time were missionaries in Korea, and I remember walking uh, all the way down the terminal at Kempo International Airport in Seoul, and uh, my mother uh, brought me to the airport. Uh, my dad was preaching somewhere, and so my mom brought me to the airport, and it was flight 003, sold to Los Angeles, and, and uh, my mom was crying so hard. I'll never forget that. It made me feel so bad. How many of your moms cried when you went to college? Let me see. How many of your moms were like, hallelujah, hallelujah? <laughs> moms cry. Dads don't even go to the airport. You know what I'm talking about? That's just the way that is. Anyways, my mom was crying, and she put me on that plane, and, and so... Um, before college, though, I actually had a, about six weeks that I was going to go out to Colorado and, and work on the family farm for my uncle, and I did that. And, and uh, my payment was, after I worked six weeks, I think he gave me a few hundred dollars, and then he gave, me a, uh, he gave me a truck. He gave me a pickup truck, and he said, this is your payment for working for me for six, uh, six weeks here. Guys, let's not slurp when I'm preaching. Let's put that down, all right? And uh, I, I really appreciate that. This isn't Starbucks. This is, this is chapel. So uh, my uncle gave me a, uh, 
he gave me this pickup truck. And I was excited to have a pickup truck. I was so excited to be able to drive all the way out to California from Colorado. I'd been in Korea for three years. I, I'd never had a truck, never drove anywhere. Um, and so I got on the interstate. I was having a great time. I drove all the way into college. It was time to register for college. And uh, when, I, when I checked in for college, they said, uh, you need a driver's license. And I said, well, I've been driving you know, last six weeks, I didn't need a driver's license. I drove all the way out here, didn't need a driver's license. They said, uh, young man, you have to have a driver's license to drive a car in California. And for that matter, you have to have a driver's license to drive a car anywhere. And so I said, okay. So uh, the, the vice president, Dr. Jack Baskin, he had his son take me to the, down to the uh, D, DMZ, a DMV rather. They have a DMZ in Korea and a DMV in, in California. So I went to the Department of Motor Vehicles and I went in there and, and they gave me this book to study. And they said, you study it and then we'll take the test right here. And so I sat there for about an hour or two and I read that book and by the grace of God, I passed my test and I obtained a driver's license. Now, I, I recommend if there's anybody here without a driver's license that you get a driver's license before you continue driving. But most of you are probably a lot smarter than I was. And uh, so God bless you for that. But I, I had to go and study that manual. Now, the manual was pretty you know, pretty black and white. I mean, it was very clear about signaling and very clear about uh, speed limits and very clear about uh, uh, braking and, and uh, very clear about various different aspects of driving. And uh, I've done my best over the years uh, to obey what I learned in that first little encounter with the driving manual. I have had a few tickets in my life, but that's another sermon. I'll share that later at another time. Now, having understood the codes for Los Angeles County and for, for California for driving, there have been a few times uh, when I have inadvertently uh, broken the codes. And like I said, I'm not going to go into all those times, uh, but I think of one or two where I actually have been pulled over. One time I was pulled over driving to go preach somewhere, and I had a police officer in the car. His name was Craig, and uh, he was a Burbank captain. He said, Pastor, he said, if, uh, if we get pulled over, don't worry about it. I've got my badge. I said, great because we were late. I said, get the pedal to the metal. Let's get to the meeting. So we get out here about five miles out of town. Sure enough, the lights go on behind us. The guy pulls us over and he comes up and he is ticked off. And he, he looks at uh, brother Craig and he says, do you know how fast you were going? And blah, blah, blah. And, and Craig pulls out his driver's license. He pulls out his badge and he kind of puts his badge out with this smile. And the guy says, I don't care what department you're from. You were breaking the, you were breaking the law, and you're going to get a ticket. And I mean, it was not friendly at all. And so he's saying that. So I, I leaned over, and uh, it was uh, the officer's name, I believe, was up church. I leaned over. I said, hey, officer, it's Pastor Chapel here. I said, really, it's my fault. I'm so sorry. I've got to preach somewhere in L.A. tonight, and he's driving me down there. It's all my, he goes, Pastor, how you doing in there? Good to see you. Oh, I understand. He said, tell this guy to slow down and stop driving so fast. And he let us go on our way. <laughs> that was one of my favorites. <laughs> now, I also had another time when I was driving across Edwards Air Force Base toward Boron, out towards Barstow, going out towards Flagstaff. And I was in a hurry. I got pulled over and, and um, it was not good. There was no grace. They didn't care who I was. They didn't care... Uh, if I was a pastor, I, they didn't care if I, if I had uh, other identification that I have from L.A. County and so forth. I tried to be nice. I tried to show them those things. And um, sometimes you get into those situations, and, 
And, and you could try to be somewhat subjective about the, the situation. You, uh, perhaps you could, uh, in subjectivity, say to the officer something like, Officer, I don't really think I was speeding. I don't feel like I was speeding. It didn't feel like I was speeding. Uh, or you could say to the officer, Officer, I don't really interpret it that way. I don't, I don't identify with that. I don't really feel that 55 means 55 because sometimes 55 might mean 58 if you're going on the downhill, but you really, if you're a flight, you'd be going 55, but if you're on the downhill, you're going 58. That's, that's the way I interpret the law. And most of you, if you were a police officer and you heard me trying to interpret the law my way, even though there's a handbook that you agreed to and you passed the test, if you're trying to interpret it that way or if you're saying something like, well, you know, I'm from New Jersey, and in New Jersey, the speed limit's 65, and here it's 55. Or someone might say, well, well I'm from Texas, and, and there the speed limit's 112, and, and here uh, it's this. And so you might, you might try to argue the relativity argument. You might try to argue the cultural element. But how many of you understand, at the end of the day, if you have broken the law of that particular state, you are going to get a ticket if the officer so decides? How many of you understand that? And when it comes to the Word of God, we have seen a generation of Christians and even seminaries that have begun to approach the Word of God with a relativity, with a relativism, with a cultural adaptation. And so what they often say to the Word of God is, well, I don't really feel like that's what that means. It doesn't hit me that way. Or culturally, that's not really the way it is. I mean, in our country, they have passed a law that two guys can get married. So I don't really identify with it that way. That's not how I identify those particular scriptures. And, and oftentimes with this cultural adaptation, oftentimes with this subjectivity, subjectivity and the approach to the scriptures, you'll find not only churches going woke, but we have found churches completely denying major portions of the Word of God and people in the pews are struggling with how to take the Word of God and apply it to their everyday life because their own minister does not teach line by line that the Bible is the Word of God. And those of you in this room, whether it's in a, an educational setting, whether it's in a church setting preaching, you will be handling the Word of God. And so it is very important that you understand how to literally, line upon line, teach the Word of God in its historical and biblical context, using the Word of God itself as your primary commentary, and teaching the Word of God as the whole counsel of God, not with relativism, not with subjectivity, not with your own cultural spin, but teaching it as it is in truth, the Word of God. Many over the years have been attacked because they have believed the Word of God as it is written, have preached it and applied it to their lives. During the reign of Bloody Mary in the 1550s in England, Bibles were used to burn people at the stake. And there were people, many of them coming out of Catholicism, uh, during the British Reformation in particular, who were burned at the stake. Uh, I think of Latimer and Ridley, who were burned at the stake in Oxford. Uh, I think of uh, uh, John Smith, who was burned at the stake in uh, London, and many, many others that we could name who were placed on the rack and their bones stretched and their joints pulled out of joint and their uh, bones broken because they would not deny Christ. They would not deny that the Bible is their final authority. In 1536, William Tyndale was burned at the stake because he translated the scriptures into 
into the English language. And yet through it all, there have been people, many of them our Anabaptist forefathers, who have steadfastly held to this truth that I preached to you this morning, and that is that the Word of God is forever. It is for every generation. It doesn't need our cultural spin. It doesn't need our relativism. It stands alone as a rock undaunted as our authority in all matters of faith and practice. Years ago, there was a book written and some movies subsequently came out called The Da Vinci Code, written by Dan Brown. Dan Brown was a, uh, an author and a, an atheistic author. And in the movie, there was a line that really summarizes what many people believe about the Bible today. The line said, the Bible is the product of man, my dear, not of God. And that's what is taught today, for example, at the Antelope Valley College. And that's what's taught in most secular colleges around the, the country today, that the Bible uh, is an interesting book. It's perhaps an inspirational book, but not an inspired book, not the very Word of God. At West Coast Baptist College, we believe the Bible, God's Word, is a collection of 66 books with one uniting theme of redemption, that these books are the holy, inspired, and infallible Word of God. Ronald Reagan, our 40th president, probably uh, one of the few great gifts from California given to the nation uh, before many of you were born, perhaps. Ronald Reagan said, quote, indeed, it is an incontrovertible fact that all the complex and horrendous questions confronting us at home and worldwide have their answer in this single book, the Bible. And I thank God for those men and women who understand that the Bible is the answer for men's problems today. So we concur with Isaiah that the Word of God will abide forever. We believe uh, that we must avoid taking this approach that, you know, I feel this way about it, or this is the way it hits me. But we must say, what does the Bible say, and then accept the truth of God's Word. Now, why do we say these things in our Bible-believing churches? I want to give you three reasons this morning. First, we say these things because of the process of inspiration. The process of inspiration. The word inspiration means God breathed. It means that God gave the words through his prophets and through uh, his apostles. And because of the process of inspiration, we believe that God's word has been revealed. God's word has been revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed for us what he wants us to know. And the great thing about studying the Bible uh, you can preach through a book of the Bible as I have done. I preached through 1 John when I was 26. I'm preaching through 1 John again, and I'm getting so much more this time. The Word of God is so full and so abundant, and it's God's revelation. 1 Corinthians 14, 37, the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And one of my favorites, and I hope you'll preach this, men, many of you, as you preach about the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul said to the Thessalonican church, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You see, the early church received the word. The early church kept the word. 
uh, of the prophets and the apostles. And so God's word has been revealed. It's not like we have to guess on marriage issues. It's not like we have to guess on morality issues. It's not like we have to guess on atonement. It's not like we have to guess on eternity. These things have been revealed, and they are clearly revealed in the Scripture. Secondly, God's Word, of course, was given by the Holy Spirit. God's Word was given by the Holy Spirit. In these next two verses, many of you have memorized, but you'll need to be ready to give an answer to everyone that asketh the reason of the hope that is within you. It's not enough that there's hope within your parents. It's not enough that there's hope here at the college. You need to be ready to give an answer of the hope that is within you. And as you give that answer, for 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, there again, God breathed. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Fellas, listen to me. Your homiletical presentation will develop. Your humor may or may not really go over sometimes, but the Word of God is what He will bless. And, and, and please understand this. Uh, as you preach through a text, as you have support texts, uh, there have been times in my life, many times on a Sunday night when I'll go home and I'll feel like, I just don't know, Lord, if I, if I presented that well enough or if I connected well and it seemed like there wasn't anyone saved or maybe there wasn't the fruit that I thought. But one thing that I can always say if I study, if I pray, I can always say, Lord, I know this. I gave your word out, and you've promised that it will not return unto itself void. And, uh, and make sure that your messages are packed with the word of God, because that's where the power lies. And so the man of God is thoroughly furnished through the word of God. And then, of course, 2 Peter 1.21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, say it with me, as they were... Now, this is what you'll hear when you're out soul winning. Oh, just a bunch of men wrote that. And you're able to open God's word and say, no, it wasn't just men. It was men moved by the Holy Ghost. Just as God breathed into Adam and Adam became a living soul, God breathed into his word. And this book is alive. It is quick. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. John 6, 63 says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. I heard about a pastor uh, who said to a little girl, he said, do you know what's in the Bible? And she said, yes, I think I know everything that's in the Bible. And the pastor said, really, tell me what's in the Bible. She said, okay, there's a picture of my brother's girlfriend. There's a ticket from the dry cleaners and there's a pizza coupon. And that's about what some people know about their Bible. It is not enough to simply know some of the books. It's not enough to use your Bible as a filing cabinet. We must know the scriptures and rightly divide the word of God. So we understand from Isaiah, the word of the Lord will last forever. Why? Because it's the inspired, revealed word of God. Secondly, I think not only of the process of inspiration, I think of the process of canonization, canonization, the fact that it has been kept together 
through the years. The Bible is the best-selling and most distributed book of all time. It's estimated that more than six billion copies of the Bible have been printed. And I know there are a few extant groups that have not received the Bible in their language, and I'm thankful for those that uh, are translating and getting the Word of God to those groups. Uh, But six billion copies of the Bible have been distributed. It's an amazing thought. It was originally written in three languages, of course, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. God's Word coming uh, down through the centuries of the Old Testament and then through the early century of the first, uh, the first century. It was written over 1,600 years, as you know, by 40 different authors, and yet without a contradiction, uh, without error, it has been given to us in letters and poetry and songs and legal documents and eyewitness accounts and biographies and in uh, and, and, and history. Uh, it has been translated now into nearly 2,700 languages. The Bible has been given, and so we're thankful for the fact that God has kept his word and brought it together. Now, how did it come together? Uh, Much like there is a process for uh, coinage and for gathering silver and gold, there is a a process by which uh, the silver is refined and the fire brings out the impurities and the silver falls away from the rock and the uh, various impurities. And there is a process that has been uh, that has uh, uh, been a testing process, if you will, uh, for the canonization of Scripture. And you'll learn this more in depth in bibliology, but let me mention a few things this morning. First of all, regarding the Old Testament books. The Old Testament books. These books began with prophets writing, Exodus 24, 4, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Think of that. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. The prophets wrote And then the words were kept. The Old Testament Hebrew canon was kept by the priests. uh, And Deuteronomy 31.26 says, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. It's an amazing thought to me. When you think of the crossing of the river Jordan and you think of Joshua telling the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant about a mile ahead of the children of Israel. And we know that the Ark itself reflects and represents Jesus Christ, and we know that it represents uh, uh, the sacrifice, the blood atonement, but also to think that the kept prophecies, the revealed Word of God given to the prophets, was in the Ark of the Covenant. It tells us, class, this morning that these Jewish people were following a picture of Christ, but they were following the Word of God as they went in to the promised land. And that's what we want, Baptist churches that are following the Word of God. That is the first distinctive of the Baptist. We believe the Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Daniel in chapter 9 and verse 2 possessed these books of the law. In Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra possessed a copy of the law of Moses. Moses, when the wall was completed around Jerusalem, they read from the law. How do you do that? Because they had kept it. It had been brought together. Luke says, Jesus himself, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures in Luke 24, 44, Jesus said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, 
that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And so the Old Testament books were brought together and kept together by the priests. And, and uh, the, in, the, in the time of Christ, they were being used and recognized Jesus himself quoting from those books. And then I think about the New Testament books, the New Testament books. There was a criteria for those New Testament books. The Old Testament books written by the prophets, kept by the priests. Uh, the New Testament books, and they were kept, the Old Testament kept in the Ark of the Covenant. The New Testament books had a process as well. And frankly, uh, even some secular authors had processes by which they kept their writings. Uh, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, had a criteria for accepting manuscripts. Uh, and this was his criteria, was the person an eyewitness of the event? How many copies of the record do we have? Are there other sources written that corroborate this document? And uh, uh, this was uh, the type of thinking that people had to validate authorship even in a secular way. But how much more so than with the Word of God? According to the first century works of Josephus, uh, the Word of God uh, was written by an apostle or someone who had direct contact with the apostles. So a New Testament book is going to be written by an apostle or someone with direct contact with the apostles. Jude 17 says it this way, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. Obviously, the believers of the early church recognized a growing body of literature as the inspired Word of God. And churches such as the church at Antioch, where uh, people were called Christians, uh, they would receive the Word of God based upon uh, and their understanding of the authorship, the truth of the doctrine, uh, the, the continuity of, of the presentation uh, being consistent with what had been given to them by the Lord and by the apostles. And then it would be added to the New Testament canon. Uh, so the question was asked, was this written by an apostle? Secondly, were the writings in question widely received as being consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament, with the teaching of Jesus, with the teaching of the apostles? And as we'll see in a moment, and you'll learn this here in the college, there are many kinds of alleged scriptures and religious writings that have been and must be rejected. And this process was something that the early church took very, very seriously. The author I mentioned ago, Dan Brown, several years ago said, the Bible as we know it today was collated by the Roman emperor Constantine. Constantine upgraded Jesus' status four centuries after his death. That is absolute heresy. Constantine did not uh, write the scriptures. Constantine did not collate the scriptures. The scriptures were given and kept by the churches long before Constantine, and nobody at any time upgrades the status of Jesus Christ. He has always been King of kings and Lord of lords. Um, this is the attitude oftentimes of the so-called intellects toward the Word of God. The truth is that all 27 Gospels were written and received by the end of the first century. They were formally adopted by the Council of Carthage in 397 AD, but the councils only acknowledged what the churches had already known. And by the way, we place our confidence in the Word itself, in the authorship of the Holy Spirit, and in the keeping 
of the priests and in the New Testament sense of the local New Testament churches that were uh, validating and obeying the teachings of the Word of God. And by that time, 397, there were 27 books that had functioned as the rule for the church for more than 250 years. And so the canonization of the scriptures was the responsibility of the early believers, and they took it very seriously. And the question then for the New Testament was, was it written by an apostle? Was it widely received? Were they authoritative? The Apostle Paul's letters were immediately received as authoritative, and, and they were obeyed, as we saw by the Thessalonians. You received it as it is in truth, not as the words of men, but as it is the Word of God. Second Peter 3 and verse 15. Turn there in your notes, if you would, for a moment in your Bible. Second Timothy 3.15. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Here you have one apostle referencing the writing of another apostle. And this was the type of evidence that was seen, and this was what is meant by collaboration, that they were seeing the apostles in agreement, and they were accepting the truths. Verse 16 says, as also in all the epistles speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or, or take out of context, as do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction." Sometimes there are going to be those who take uh, their own interpretation or write their own writings uh, that are not in continuity with the Word of God, and they do this to their own, uh, their own destruction. And as we all know, the Bible is very clear in the book of Revelation, we're not to add to or subtract from what God gave in His final revelation. Now the fact is that there were other false gospels, and you'll hear about these, and sometimes people that are a little more learned in their atheistic concepts or their Gnostic concepts, they'll try to throw up to you, what about the Gnostic Gospels? What about these writings or those writings? And there were Gnostic Gospels, Gospels that denied the deity of Christ, that were in circulation in those early centuries. And sometimes uh, they were uh, being presented to believers. And that's why in some of the books of the New Testament, they, the believers are being warned about these teachers and about their writings as well. Uh, they were rejected by the church because they came uh, about 150 years after the New Testament was given, uh, yet uh, these were uh, false uh, writings, and by that time, the believers took the Word of God. They compared the teachings of the Word of God about, for example, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the blood atonement of Christ. They compared it with these Gnostic Gospels, and they flatly rejected it. Now, what has happened in recent years? Some have tried to bring those back up and say, these are a part of the Scripture, and you had better know, and you had better contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. And you had better know where to draw that line and understand that God is inspired and God has canonized 66 books of the Bible for us to teach, to preach, and to live by today. Many writings have come since the canonization of Scripture. Think about it. Think about these writings. Uh, the Koran has come since the Scripture was completed. The Koran denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It denies the depravity of man. It never has the word love in it one single time. 
Uh, it came hundreds of years after the scriptures. And so as believers, we would say that God revealed his word. He settled his word once and for all. And we would reject uh, the Quran. Uh, uh, the Time, Time magazine a few years ago said the recovered text, the Gnostic Gospels, uh, feed America's fever for, ever, uh, in, for their ever-growing interest in mystical spirituality. And yet we would say we already have the source of our spirituality, and it's not found in Gnostic Gospels. It's not found in later writings. You see, men do not reject the Bible because it rejects itself. Men reject the Bible because it rejects them. And, and men are always looking for a spiritual writing that will allow for their sin. Is everybody with me right now? Men do not reject the Bible because it rejects itself. Men reject the Bible because of what it says about them. And because of the sin in this world, people are always looking for a relative approach. They're always looking for another version that's easier on their sin. They're always looking for another way uh, or another writing that will make them feel better about themselves. Charles Spurgeon said this, if I did not believe in the infallibility of the Bible, I would rather be without it. If I am to judge the book, uh, if I am to judge the book, it is no judge of me. If I am to sift it and lay this aside and only accept that according to my judgment, then I have no guidance whatever unless I have conceit enough to trust my own heart. The new theories deny infallibility to the words of God, but practically imputes it to the judgments of men. At least this is all the infallibility which they can get at. I protest that I will rather risk my soul with a guide inspired from heaven than from the differing leaders who arise from the earth at the call of modern thought. In other words, Spurgeon said, I'm going to hold to the word of God and I'm going to reject all of the writings and all of the presumptions of modern thought. I will stand by the word of God. And so the word of the Lord is forever. Why? Because of the process of inspiration, because of the process of canonization, bringing the books together. And then thirdly, because of of the process of preservation. The process of preservation. Now we believe today that God has preserved his word. And as we think about the doctrine of preservation, uh, we're thankful for the promises of God regarding the subject. You say, why do you believe there's a preserved word? God promised there would be a preserved word. And uh, here at West Coast Baptist College, of course, we believe his word is preserved in the King James Version, and there's textual reasons for that with respect to the uh, Texas Receptus and with respect to the uh, process by which uh, we have received the King James Bible. Uh, we believe that uh, there are other versions in foreign lands, for example, that contain the Bible. I believe, for example, you can lead someone to Christ, maybe in uh, India or China with some of these that uh, perhaps didn't have the same process. But for the English-speaking people, I'm very comfortable to say I believe God has preserved his word for us in the King James Version of the Bible. Now, why do you believe that? Well, first of all, God has promised to preserve his word. The Bible says in Isaiah 48, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And I just believe that if God said we would have it, he wouldn't leave us without it, and that we should be thankful today that we have the word of God. Uh, I believe God guided the preservation of his word. 
We do not believe in secondary inspiration. We do not believe that God inspired the King James translators. But we do believe that God guided the process and that God has kept for us the truth down to this age. In Matthew 5 and verse 18, the Bible says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth, Matthew 24, 35, shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 